Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Shares for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. One of the core roles of the board it's really about succession planning and overseeing and developing talent within your management team. So if you're turning over your management team a lot, there's probably two things happening there. You're possibly not recruiting or developing the right people, or when you have put them in place, you're not all aligned and not all on the same page and they're leaving. But both of those situations aren't great for the stability or the long-term performance of the company. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. How can you tell the company that you own what you actually think about them? What's the best way to make your displeasure felt? I'm joined today by Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, with some advice on how to blow public raspberries at our not-so-favourite companies. G'day, Steve. G'day, Phil. Thank you very much for, for having me back on. It's great to have you back on, and always good to hear about the great work of the Australian Shareholders Association. So... It's been a while since we've had someone from the association on, so just to give us a little potted history about the association and what you guys do. Yeah, thanks, Phil. So obviously been around for a long time. I think over 60 years now that the Shareholders Association's been doing what we do, and that's basically two things. So the, the first one is education, where we try and you know help individual investors on their journey with lots of good information, conferences, a, a magazine, a website, all of that kind of stuff where you can learn more about, you know, the share market and and different companies, different funds, etc. So yeah, lots of that happening on a daily basis. We have 50 meetings 
all over the country where members get together and and talk all things investing and, and share market every month. And then the other big thing we do, which is quite different, is is what we call advocacy or, or monitoring, where we basically, you know, follow a group of companies, roughly the ASX 200, and we have a volunteer that that goes out and, and meets with the companies before their annual general meetings, and and works through the issues that they're putting to shareholders to vote on. And then we put together what we call voting intentions for shareholders if they need some help with how they should vote their shares at that year's AGM. So there's not really anyone else that does that on behalf of retail shareholders. There's big what we call proxy advisors that do it on behalf of institutions like super funds and and managed funds, but no one really that does it on behalf of the small or the individual shareholders. So, So that's where we can come in and possibly help you if you're interested in having your voice heard and knowing what's happening with the structure and you know changes and remuneration and the board and all those kind of interesting things that that might be relevant to your shareholding in the company. And these uh, voting intentions are publicly available, aren't they? Anyone can log in and have a look at them. They are, yeah. They're all available on our website. So you can just go to australianshareholdersassociation.com and there's a little section there on companies we monitor. If you go in there, you can put in the ticker code or the name of the company. And if it's a company that we monitor, you can read the report. Generally comes out a couple of weeks before the AGM. So if the AGM's in November, for example, that won't be up yet. But as we get closer to the AGM and those things are finalised, that report goes up on the website and you can see how we're suggesting you should vote and why. We also put a, an AGM report on the website after the AGM happens. So once the voting's happened and whatever's happened at the meeting, you'll get a nice concise report of what happened there. And you know that can obviously be very interesting for people if they weren't able to get to the AGM themselves. We are, as I said, we only cover about 200 companies and we'd love to cover more but it's all predominantly volunteer based. Oh, it's incredible. Based. It's incredible that you can cover so many <laughs> with a volunteer yeah, base. Yeah, that's right. And that's why it's volunteers. So, you know, it is a difficult job. It's it's pretty tough to read an annual report and figure out, you know, what's good, bad or indifferent about those particular issues that you're voting on. So we have a great group of volunteers across the country that do it, but we'd love some more. And if anyone's interested in being a volunteer or a monitor and learning more about the companies and getting involved, we'd love to hear from you because it'd help us cover even more companies. I find them very educational as well. Once you read these voting intentions and the report that the volunteers have done, it really gives you an incredibly detailed dive into a company, what it does and where the money comes from as well, because sometimes it's coming from unexpected sources. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we're not necessarily in there trying to give you investing advice. So when we write the report, it's not about, you know, is this a good or bad company to invest in right now? It's more a report on, as you said, where's the Where's the revenue and the, you know the business been over the last twelve months? And that's all you know basically taken from the annual report. What's going on with the composition of management and, and the board? And then the specific resolutions. So when we talk about resolutions, we're talking about things like the remuneration, where the basically the remuneration report. So how the the management team are being compensated for the year that gets put to shareholders to vote on. If a new director's up for election or re-election, that gets put to shareholders to vote on. Things like any changes to their constitution, if they're proposing to change, you know, how much money they can raise or maybe how they hold their AGMs, those things get put to shareholders to vote on. So they're the kind of things that basically shareholders get a chance to have their say once a year. And, and I know a lot of people don't do that because it is 
pretty tedious sometimes reading through those reports and trying to figure that all out. And some people just go, it's all too hard. But there is an alternative. If you do want to have your voice heard, that's where the ASA can help you. And we can probably talk about it later, but there's some ways that you can allocate your votes to the ASA if you want some help with that. No, I think let's talk about it now. <laughs> it okay. seems to be in the, in the natural flow of the conversation. Yeah, yeah no, but that's about proxies. And every time there's a notice of an AGM that we get, hopefully, and by email at the moment, you're asked to vote. But that's often right. people don't know what to vote on. But uh, the yeah. ASA can look look after that for you. Exactly. So a lot of people will get the email or maybe the notice in the in the mail saying the AGM's coming up and, you know, here's your chance to vote. If you were like me early on, a lot of people probably just, you know, delete that or throw it in the bin or whatever because it's all too hard. But the alternative is you can allocate what's called a proxy or, you know, someone to vote on your behalf. And that's where the Shareholders Association can come in if you weren't going to vote. You can just write in Australian Shareholders Association in as a proxy and then we'll vote the way that we think is in the best interest of most retail shareholders on your behalf. We don't know who you are and how many shares you've got or anything like that. It just all gets aggregated together by the registry. So, you know, if you're familiar with Computer Share or Link or Atomic, those kind of share registries, they'll just collate all the votes that we're given together and give it to us on the day and say, here's all the votes that you've got to vote at the meeting. So it's all very anonymous. But yeah, it is a great way to still have your voice heard as an individual shareholder. And typically, we're in the somewhere between the top 10 and top 20 shareholders most of the time when we collate all those votes together. So the companies generally do listen to us and are are interested in the way that we're going to vote and what we think, because often we do hold a significant number of shares when all the smaller retail shareholders have allocated their proxies to us. We don't get anything out of that. There's nothing financial in it. It's really just about, again, sticking up for or standing up for individual shareholders and making sure their voice is heard. It's interesting, the remuneration report side of things. I just was reading a little thread on Twitter this morning, and it's this guy who's basically looking at what he calls shitcos and what to watch out for. (laughs) (laughs) And he's got this category of lifestyle companies where you can actually look at companies and their market cap might be $4 million and the directors and management are being paid, you know, $2 million a year. And he calls them lifestyle companies for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look yeah. at the whole ASX, I think, you know, there's just over 2,000 companies most years that are listed on the ASX. And somewhere between two thirds to three quarters of them don't make any money. Um, it's incredible, isn't it? When you look basis. at that, that, that yeah. metric, yeah. yeah. So what's happening there a lot of the time is that the, you know, the companies are listing and they're raising capital, et cetera, and then they're paying, you know, management and the boards wages each year. And eventually, if the money starts to run out, they have to go and raise capital again to, you know, keep funding the company and keep funding management salaries. So I'm not saying there's necessarily anything wrong with that. There's plenty of times companies don't make a profit because they're investing and they're going to grow into a profitable company in the future. That in and of itself isn't necessarily a problem, but certainly... If you've got a company that isn't making money, you do want to have a good look at the remuneration report, I think, and make sure that it's, you know, it's fair and reasonable and that management aren't taking excessive salaries when they're not producing any profits yet. Because it's basically shareholders that are funding that at the end of the day. They're having to provide the capital or possibly they're borrowing money to pay, you know, management salaries and board fees, basically. Mm. Well, I guess this is a good point to start talking about capital and capital raisings because I heard you, a lot of this interview we've based on your recent appearance with TK and Cam on the uh, QAV Investing podcast. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, which was a, a, a lot of fun. I'd uh, recommend that to anyone to have a listen. Yeah, always now, great to talk to those guys. But yeah, capital yeah. raising. You know, most people that have been investing for a while have probably had some kind of capital raising offered to them at some point. And what's happening there is the company's basically coming to the market and saying, you know, we need some more capital. We want to raise some money from our shareholders or potential shareholders. And there's a few different ways that that companies do that. So what often happens is... The company will go out and talk to investment banks and big institutions and try and raise a significant amount of the capital they're looking for from large institutional type shareholders. And that normally happens before you as a retail shareholder are even aware of it. So they'll ring around for 24 hours and you know try and raise a bunch of money. And then they'll announce to the market, possibly before or certainly after that process has, has happened, that they're raising capital and that they've raised this much from their institutional shareholders. And hopefully, they'll then also give their retail or individual shareholders a chance to participate in that capital raising. The second-class citizens. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So <laughs> that's where we come in again. We really advocate very strongly that the individual or the smaller shareholders should be treated equally or fairly as the large or the institutional type shareholders have been. So what we really advocate with companies there is that they give the retail shareholder the same opportunity to participate at the same discount, same kind of terms. And there's a few different ways companies can do that. Sometimes they don't do it at all, and we take a very dim view of that. If they only raise capital with the big guys and don't give their small shareholders a chance, it's we think it's particularly unfair because you basically are getting diluted. They've grown the share of the pie, if you like, but you haven't got an increasing percentage of your slice of the pie. So you basically get diluted. You own a smaller percentage of the company now than you did before the raising took place. So we take a dim view of that. The next option is that they can do what's called a a share purchase plan. So that's where they basically can raise up to $30,000 from each individual shareholder. So you would apply for however many additional shares you want, up to a maximum of $30,000 normally, and hopefully you'll get your full allocation. Sometimes they may put a cap on it and they may get even more interest in the the raising than they were going to allocate. So they'll scale you back. And that means, let's say they were trying to raise a million dollars and they got $2 million worth of applications, they'd probably scale everyone back 50%. So you'd get half of what you applied for so that they still got to their million dollars. So it's not super fair, but obviously it's better than not participating at all because you're not getting diluted if you do want some shares at the discounted rate. The next option which we think is the best, is what's called a a patrio raising. So that's where whether you participate or not, you get compensated. Uh, So if you do participate, you'll end up with the same amount of share of the company as you had beforehand. If you don't participate, the company will compensate you for not participating so that, again, you continue to hold the same amount on the other side of the raising. So that's the fairest way. It is more complicated and probably a little more costly for the company to do, but it is the fairest way to raise capital and that's what we encourage companies to do. And some companies are increasingly doing that. But before Sydney Airport got taken off the ASX into private hands, it did a patrio raising when it was raising money, which was great. So there's some things to watch out for. Uh, And the only other little practical tip I guess we'd, we'd give there is that because you don't have to necessarily make the decision on the day that it's announced. It's often opportune to wait for you know a couple of days before the closing date just to make sure that the shares are still trading for a higher price than the capital raising price you're being offered is. Because if they're 
now at a, a lower price than the, the capital raising price, you'd be better off probably just buying those shares on market, for example, than actually paying the higher price that, that's in the capital raising. So that's one of the advantages you do have as a, a smaller investor. You can wait till a couple of days before the raising closes to make sure that the price is in the money, as they say. Okay, well, let's get back to remuneration reports or REM reports, as they're often called, and yeah. uh, and AG, upcoming AGM. So Qantas, <laughs> there is so much to talk about in Qantas, and I know Rachel, the CEO, has been uh, doing a lot of media lately about it. Yeah, everyone's inter- interested in it. What what's the ASA's feelings at the moment on Qantas? Yeah, look, it's very topical. Yeah, look, it's very topical at the moment. Obviously, there's a lot of news coming out on a daily basis about Qantas at the moment. I think we're talking late September, so who knows where it'll be by the time we get to the AGM. But we've been pretty vocal with the company. We'll be meeting with the company prior to the AGM, meeting with the board and sharing our you know, concerns and views. And then again, we'll be putting voting intentions together before the AGM based on all that information that we're able to clarify and collect. The annual report, I think, only came out about a week ago. So it's, it's still early days as we're working through all of that. But we're obviously very concerned with some of the you know, reputational damage that's now been done to the company that's you know, obviously been damaging for shareholders. And you're seeing that in the, you know, the share price that's been dropping through these, these last few weeks as more of these issues have been coming to light. We're obviously also concerned about the board because when you think about what a board's supposed to do, board's really there for oversight and governance of the company. They're not there to run the company, but they are there to oversee management and ensure that management are you know, are doing the right thing and protecting all of the stakeholders and, and looking after the company, making good decisions, etc. And when that doesn't happen, you're very much within your rights as a shareholder to question the judgment and the transparency, et cetera, that the board has been providing or has you know, been fulfilling. So we've got some pretty significant questions and concerns now for all of the board and, and certainly the chair who's you know, essentially the first amongst equals on a board around you know, what they knew, when they knew it, what they're going to do about it. We've seen on remuneration that they've announced they are going to hold back some of the bonuses in the short term while they wait to see how the ACCC investigation plays out. They've also talked about potentially clawing back some of the past CEO's bonuses. So we'll continue to watch that. We won't let that drift off into the sunset. Those will be things that we're, you know, continue to watch and comment on as we put together our voting intentions and our AGM report. And we were referring to lifestyle companies before. <laughs> and there seems <laughs> yeah. to be a bit of an aspect. Did you see that Joe Aston article about Alan Joyce in the AFR? Oh, a few weeks ago. I've read lots of uh, yeah. Joe's columns on Qantas and, you know, Joe's a very uh, entertaining and, and cutting journalist, but he often does get to the heart of the issue, I find, pretty quickly mm. and, and then applies a blowtorch that isn't necessarily being applied elsewhere. So I always enjoy reading Joe's columns and seeing what he's got to say about, you know, our, our companies and our directors and our CEOs. It's, uh, it's always a good read. Yeah, I think uh, there was a great line where he was talking about Alan Joyce's closing the gap strategy, meant <laughs> buying the penthouse apartment ne- next door and knocking out the wall in between. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, there's plenty of pl- been plenty of material for him to be talking about. So, and I don't mm. think it's going to go away anytime soon. I'm sure this is going to continue to drag on all the way through to the AGM, and there'll be lots more, you know, reporting and commentary made uh, over the next month as we get closer to the AGM. So Fortescue, you were talking with Tony and Cam about Fortescue as well and about the 
FFI Green Energy Company, which you seem to be taking a dim view that they're allocating capital to green energy and taking it away from Fortescue, which is actually where the profits are being made. Yeah, I wouldn't. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that we've taken a strong view on that. It's just something interesting to note that, you know, as you see what the company's, you know, planning and reporting this year as they publish their annual report, things have changed a little bit from where they were a year ago. They, you know, they've been allocating a certain percentage of their profits to to the FFI or the you know the green energy side of the business, and I think it was about ten percent that they had been allocating up until now. And I think what they announced was that they're now going to start to review the projects on a more of a case by case basis rather than just an arbitrary percentage of Fortescue's you know iron ore profits. But what they did also say that I thought was interesting was that the returns on the green energy business may not be as high as they were on the iron ore business. So I think if you're a shareholder of Fortescue, that's just something to be aware of, that they're allocating capital, you know, almost away from the iron ore business or away from, you know, potentially dividends to shareholders into the green energy or the FFI business that's probably going to have a lower return based on what they're saying now. That's not necessarily good or bad it's just something to be aware of i think as a shareholder that that's a you know certainly a change in the business from where it was a couple of years ago what we'll be digging even more into though is what's happening again at board level and what's happening again at management level there's been a lot of management turnover at fortescue over the last 12 months lots of you know c suite type executives coming and going and that's something again that you know we'll dig into because if you think again of one of the core roles of a board it's really about succession planning and overseeing and developing talent within your management team. So if you're turning over your management team a lot, there's probably two things happening there. Either you're, you know, you're possibly not recruiting or developing the right people, or when you have put them in place, you're not all aligned and not all on the same page and they're leaving. But both of those situations aren't great for the stability or the long-term performance of the company. So look, none of us really know what's going on inside a business at that level. We can only make our assessments based on the public information that the company puts out. But as a general rule, we don't like to see, you know, lots of management turnover at a company and it does, you know, have us dig into, you know, what's happening at board level and how the board are viewing management planning and management succession. Yeah, you'd think it was a bit of a a red light, a bit of an alarm bell going off, wouldn't you? Well, it certainly can be, yeah. I mean, maybe Mm. sometimes there's good reasons for it, but often, yeah, when you do see a lot of management turnover, it tells you that there's some instability or, you know, unhappiness in in the team. So it's certainly something as a shareholder you should be looking for. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Are you confused about how to invest? LifeSherpa can ease the burden of having to decide for yourself. Head to lifesherpa.com.au to find out more. LifeSherpa, Australia's most affordable online financial advice.
You also referred to, or maybe Tony referred to, Warren Buffett and how he sees a CEO's main job as being a capital allocator. And we've been just talking about capital a lot in this podcast, but it's often something that a CEO doesn't have experience in on the way going up, that they've actually suddenly now got all this capital to deal with and how they're going to allocate it appropriately to benefit shareholders. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think about it, there's lots of ways that the capital can be moved around in a business. You can invest it in new ideas, new opportunities, future growth. You can return it to shareholders at dividends. You can just leave it in the bank and earn interest on it. There's lots of ways that you can utilize the capital that you've got in the business. And when you think about, you know, what your CEO's core job is, or, you know, probably one of their most important functions, it is to allocate that capital as well as they possibly can. If they don't have a great idea for reinvestment for future growth, they probably should give the capital back to shareholders in dividends or buybacks or whatever it might be. If they've got great ideas and they can get a really good return on the capital, then a lot of the time, you know, it might be better for them to reinvest the capital rather than returning it as dividends. So those are big decisions and they're not easy things to get right all the time. They probably involve a bit of guesswork and a bit of, you know, crystal ball work and all that kind of thing about what the future is going to hold. But again, that's something you do want to be looking for, I think, in your CEOs is, you know, how well they're utilising and allocating the capital and what kind of return they're getting on the capital over time that they've got to use in the business. And some things to look for there, again, are, you know, for example, back to capital raisings, if they do a capital raising and they do it at a really big discount, for example, and and really dilute the business more than they need to. And you'll see that where there's a you know significant oversubscribing of the capital raising. That tells you they could have raised money at a lower discount because if you've got way more people applying for shares than you're allocating, you didn't necessarily need to discount the shares as much. So that's a good one to look at. Are your CEOs you know, doing capital raisings where they're getting you know, lots more money in than they needed? And if so, they've probably given away a bit too much. Now, we can all make mistakes, but you want to be looking for a trend of those kind of things with, with CEOs, I think. So yeah, that's a, it's a tough job, I'm sure, to be a CEO and to figure all these things out. But as a shareholder, that's something you really want to watch, how well they're allocating the capital. And of course, if they're allocating the capital to buying companies overseas, that can be another yeah. danger signal, can't it? Yeah. it? Exactly. Yeah. We were talking about that, I think, on, on the, the previous episode. But yeah, there's been lots of unfortunate stories, I guess, of Aussie companies that have expanded internationally or tried to acquire businesses internationally and domestically as well. But only anecdotal, but but roughly two-thirds of acquisitions that our listed companies make don't normally work out as well as they're proposed at, at the time the acquisition's made. And certainly internationally, my guess is it's probably even an even lower strike rate. So that's something you want to be looking for too. If a company's raising capital or using debt or using some of their cash to, to make an acquisition, just remember that you know roughly two-thirds of the time they don't play out as well as, as the company was expecting for a whole myriad of reasons. And when they do make an acquisition, you obviously you want to look at that really closely and, and make sure that you know, you're very confident that it is going to be earnings accretive or a good acquisition for the business over the long term. And when it's international, the risks are even higher because it is harder to know what's the detail and what's happening in an international market or you know, an international business compared to you know, one domestically that you can be much closer to and you know, understand a lot more about potentially. So, so just something to bear in mind when your companies are doing acquisitions, more go wrong than right. 
and and the international ones probably get even even less successful over time. For, and because it's another one of those success stories, isn't it? Because CEOs and management, they want to talk about how great this is going to be for the business. And so, they're of course, they're pumping this kind of idea up, aren't they? Exactly. And, you know, sometimes mm. there can be very good reasons to do it. If you're a pretty mature Aussie business, then we've got a, you know, a relatively small market, we're about 25 million people, and it's a pretty, you know, mature economy, I suppose. So sometimes, you know, if you do want to keep growing your business, it may make sense to expand internationally. And if it's complementary to what you've already got domestically, there's no reasons, you know, specifically not to do that. But as always, all these things, the devil's in the detail. So as a shareholder, I think you want to be looking really closely at the specific business they're acquiring or adding on and you know what management expertise or knowledge that they would reasonably have to embed that business into the existing one and you know what are their chances of success. And, and again, it takes a bit of guesswork, but wouldn't necessarily say it's a, always a bad thing that an Australian company expands internationally. It's just the risks are probably higher than when they're just expanding domestically. Mm, mm. And just watch out for that word synergy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it can go well. I think we, we talked about an example recently with, with Nick Scarley, the furniture business mm. where- Well, that's a local, but that's a local acquisition. Not that's right, but it much, has gone very well. Deal. So, you know, there mm. are certainly times where companies acquire other businesses and, and they do get that synergy you mentioned where they are able to reduce costs by, you know, efficiencies of having, you know- two brands or two businesses now. So in the case of Nick Scarley, they bought the plush sofa business. And it was a you know a different position in the market, I think, and a different, you know, kind of customer segment to to the Nick Scarley core customer. And they have integrated it really well. So when you look at that a few years later, you go, well, that was a really successful acquisition. And that CEO, Anthony Scarley, has probably done a good job along with his team of integrating Plush into the, the Nick Scarley operation and bringing some of the best practice strategies and operational skills that Nick Scarley has to the Plush business. So uh, that would be a, a time, I guess, for example, now where I'd look at Anthony Scarley and go, well, he's done a good job with capital allocation there. Mm that's probably going to give me a higher degree of confidence in the future if he looks to do another acquisition at some point. Does Again, it doesn't guarantee it'll go as well next time, but it, it gives you a bit more confidence that they've obviously done a good job with their due diligence and their planning on this first acquisition that they've made as a company. I also just wanted to point out in terms of getting in touch with management or hearing what management have got to say directly as analyst calls. Now, it's pretty easy to jump onto an analyst call and you're presuming that the analysts that are asking the questions are some of the finest minds in the finance industries. But often the questions they ask, and I've jumped onto a couple of them over the last couple of years just out of interest, and it's incredible the lack of depth to the questions that are asked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we don't probably have as many analysts in Australia now as we once did, which means I think they're probably spread a lot thinner than they used to be in terms of how much time they can really devote to each company that they cover. And yeah, I do tune into most of the presentations that the the companies that I invest in give and uh, and try and listen to those earnings calls or you know AGM's annual report updates etc half year report updates all those kind of times where management's you know put on a call or a webinar and speak to their investors and you'll often have you know four or five analysts on that call as well that are from again the investment banks or the brokers the fund managers etc and uh, and at the end of those briefings you normally get some analyst questions and and you know sometimes there can be really good questions from some of those analysts that maybe have covered the company for a long time but equally there can be some pretty you know 
skin deep questions, I think, where it's just a quick, hey, you know, are you going to grow again next year at the same rate you did last year? You know, that kind of stuff. So I guess my personal takeaway from all of this is, you know, listen to those calls if you can and see how your CEO or your management team responds to those questions, you know, how frank and transparent and detailed are they with with answering those questions. But feel free to ask some questions yourself. And, and I've got a few examples of some questions that I'm going to be asking of some of my companies in upcoming AGM season I can give you that are probably a deeper or, or a, you know, more probing question than maybe you'll get on, a, on an analyst's call at times. Okay, let's have a listen to those questions. Well, yeah, there's <laughs> so, a, so there's a couple. You know, high fire, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. These are just examples, obviously, but you know, I, I do as a habit now read through the annual reports of all the companies I invest in, and and then I you know look at the resolutions that they're putting to shareholders to vote on, and in particular remuneration and the board, because I think they're the two things that are really important to you as a shareholder. What kind of directors or what kind of board have you got overseeing your company? And then how is your executive team being paid and and incentivized? So, you know, JB Hi-Fi, for example, I own shares in JB Hi-Fi. Certainly not a recommendation, just, you know, using it as an example of, you know, a couple of questions you might be interested in or might be wanting to ask this season. So they have a... It kind of gives you the ticket to the AGM, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's right. So they have a couple of interesting metrics on their remuneration structure. One of them's around employee engagement. So basically, they measure how engaged their employees are every year through some kind of survey, I imagine. And then they report that to shareholders. And and that is a really good thing to know because if you've got a whole bunch of people working for your company that aren't engaged or aren't committed to the business they're probably less likely to deliver good results compared to someone that is really engaged, that does care about the company a lot more. So what I am proposing to dig into here with them is how are you measuring your engagement? It's listed as a key metric for management and one of the ways that you're incentivizing management. So you know, how do we know our employees are engaged and what's the tool that you're using to measure it to make sure that it's hopefully a, a really legitimate tool? They also you know, don't specifically call out this year, what are the key financial metrics that management are being incentivized on? So last year or and previously, it's been rolling four-year earnings growth. And they you know shared that retrospectively. But I want to know what this year's financial metrics are that management are working towards. Is it something that's aligned with me again as a shareholder? Are management trying to grow the earnings per share or are they trying to grow the revenue or what's the actual metric? So given that that wasn't disclosed, I plan to dig into that and ask them, you know, what are the specific financial metrics? Now, they may not tell me because they haven't disclosed it in the annual report that I could find, but hopefully they'll answer and you'll then get an idea about whether the CEO and the management team are, you know, working on a metric or being paid on a metric or incentivized on a metric that's you know consistent with what you'd want as a shareholder. So there are a couple of examples at JB Hi-Fi. There's another ASX 200 company called Coden, probably not quite as well known to most people. It's a South Australian-based business that's been around for a long time, and it does metal detectors. So they sell metal detectors all over the world for hobbyists and, and mines and military applications. They also have a communications division that provides 
communication equipment to first responders all over the world. So think, you know, ambulance, fire services, also broadcasters. So think, you know, Channel 9 showing the the cricket. They might be using Coden's equipment to broadcast and interview, etc. So specifically on Coden, they're a bit different to a lot of listed companies. They have quite a small board. There's only five board members at Coden, of which one of them is the the CEO. And what's notable, I think, is that they publish a skills matrix in their annual report, like most companies do. And I like to look at that to see, you know, what are the skills that the directors that are currently on the board have? And are they the right skills or the best skills to kind of oversee and, and take the company forward? And what's noticeable this year is they had a couple of directors resign last year that had a lot of military and metal detection type experience over many years. Those directors have resigned. They've replaced them with a couple of new directors this year that don't have the same skills. So what I want to dig with them here is, you know, you've got a small board, but it looks like you're missing some really key skills around someone with extensive military experience, someone with really extensive communications experience, someone with US experience, because a big part of their business is now in the US. So is the board addressing that? Are you planning to add additional directors? You know, how are you going to plug those skills gaps going forward so that we've got some people on the board that are asking the right questions of the management team in the future? And again, hopefully we'll get a good answer at the AGM to those questions. What is the chair and the rest of the board thinking and doing there in terms of plugging those significant gaps they now have on their board, in my opinion? We'll get back to the show right after this brief message. Why am I buying, holding or selling a share? If you can't answer that basic question, then you don't have a plan. The best investors are ruthless in executing their plans. I've been fortunate to meet many great investors on the podcast. Tony Kynaston is one of the best. He has a clear and systematic approach to investing that is honest, sensible and methodical. It's called QAV, Quality at Value. QAV now offer an excellent light plan for only $29 per month. You can follow their buy and sell recommendations and learn the ropes. And the first month is free using the promo code SFBLIGHT. Go to qavpodcast.com.au to sign up. That's qavpodcast.com.au using the promo code SFBLIGHT. Past performance is not a guarantee of future returns. Please read the QAV FSG and consult a financial professional before investing. I receive a small commission for services I recommend and I only recommend services I use myself. And the Shareholders Association are advocates of diversity on boards. And some people see this as woke do-goodism. But you've had some experiences, especially when you were doing your company director's course, which kind of maybe not changed your mind, but showed you the, the, the value of having diversity on boards. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really interesting point. And I know it can be somewhat controversial sometimes for people around, you know, uh, targets or quotas or whatever you might call it around diversity on on boards in particular. And one of the easiest ones to identify is gender, of course. You know, it's easy to figure out how many males and females you've got on a board. And for a long time, the ASA has supported the same kind of principles that the ASX asks for and the Institute of Company Directors asks for, which is at least 30% female representation on board. And 10 years ago, we didn't have that. We had a much smaller percentage of females on our major company boards. And we've been advocating for quite some time to get that up to at least 30%. We've now moved in line with kind of a few of the other super funds as well that are looking for what's called 40-40-20. So that's 40% female, 40% male, and then 20% can swing or move. And why is that important? Well, again, if you think about one of the core or the most important role of a board, it's to oversee the company 
And one of the best ways to oversee a company is to have a diverse range of experience, background, you know, knowledge to ask the right questions and probe into the right issues. If you've got a whole bunch of people that all have the same experience from the same background, from the same industry, you know, obviously the same gender at times, it's more likely that they're all going to think pretty similarly and that they may not be asking the question that they weren't aware of or that they didn't think of because they don't have, you know, different experience. So I had a, you know, really good personal experience with this when I did my company director's course. I'd previously, you know, had a private business and we had a board and we were all the same. We're all a bunch of, you know, Aussie guys from the shoe business that all had a pretty similar, you know, history. And as I reflected on it, I realized that, you know, there were lots of things we didn't know or that we hadn't experienced that weren't necessarily good things to be missing on our board. We got a little bit lucky. But when when I did the company director's course, one of the things they do there is put you through a mock board scenario at the end of the course. And they'll say, you know, you're a board of listed company X. Here's a problem that you've got. What are you as a board going to do to try and solve this problem? And in my group, they break you out into a, you know, a dummy board situation. And in my group, we had a lady who was in the legal department of Virgin Airlines. We had a lady that was the financial controller at one of the super funds. We had myself. We had a, a doctor from one of the top hospitals. And we had a, a senior officer from the military. And so you get this problem and you all start to read it on your own at first and you know see if you can figure it out before you meet as a group. And I read it and I thought, oh, I've got all the answers. I know what to do here. And then realized as we then started to talk about it as a group that the rest of the group were asking some really different questions or coming up with some really different ideas or issues that I just you know wouldn't have thought of with my lack of knowledge or expertise from their respective areas. So it really showed me that having a broad, different range of experiences, backgrounds, et cetera, is much more likely to get you to the right outcome or a better outcome than if everyone's thinking the same and only has the same kind of solution to a problem or an opportunity. That doesn't mean that you know people should just get appointed to a board based on their gender, of course, or any kind of you know diverse background. Of course, you want to be qualified and have the right skills that the company needs, but equally, it doesn't mean everyone should be the same or we should only have all male or all female boards or all the same age or all the same industry. You know, that's not really going to give you the best chance of overseeing the company and managing risk and opportunity. So yeah, just a personal experience. But yeah, I do now see the value much more in why various bodies and folks recommend or advocate for as much diversity as possible, along with you know the skill set and the experience that's relevant or right for that particular company. And let's face it, guys, and especially in, in this end of the, the corporate world and the, uh, the business world, often do suffer from overinflated egos, which yeah, we exactly. we can as much. That's only anecdotal, but yeah. Well, there's, there's actually, you know, I've read quite a bit of research actually that shows, you know, again, on average, these things are all averages. Of course, there's exceptions, but on average, women actually get better investment results over the long term than men do as a bucket. So I wonder aloud sometimes why that is. Is it because men are overconfident and they take more risks on average and women are maybe a little more conservative and a little more, you know, long term in their thinking? Who knows, right? It's hard to know for sure. But there's certainly some good research that's looked at male versus female brokerage accounts over the long term. And on average, the the female bucket tends to outperform the male bucket a little bit, which you wouldn't think when you come into our industry and see how many men there are and how many men are in the media and how many men manage funds, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, maybe that's another good example for why it's good to have a bit more diversity and a range of views and experience around the table. 
So, Steve, how can listeners get in touch with the Shareholders Association? Yeah, so the best way, of course, is via the website, australiansshareholders.com.au. There's lots of great information on there, plenty of free information that you can access. And obviously, the voting intentions are on there, like we talked about earlier, if you're interested in, in looking at you know companies we monitor and how we're proposing you vote at an AGM. Just, uh, tell also, us, um, just tell us in the menu where you get that, because that's in, where is it? Yeah, Advo- so in the Ad- menu, advocacy? ASX Monitoring and Shareholder Advocacy. So you just click on that little box and go to the drop down that says Companies We Monitor. And you can mm-hmm. uh, you find all the info in there. If you put the ticker code of your company in, it'll tell you whether we cover it or not. And uh, and again, just a reminder that those reports generally only go up a couple of weeks before the AGM. So you need to be you know, relatively close to the AGM before you can see them. We also hold member meetings all around the country. So you can normally attend those for free the first time just to come and check it out and see what it's all about. Those are all listed on the website too. So you can click into events or, or members and, and see where the next member meeting is, local member meeting, if there's one in your area. And you're always welcome to yeah to come and attend and see what the meeting's all about before becoming a member. So there are probably a couple of great ways to find out a little bit more about us. And, and yeah, of course, you can always contact us as well via phone or email if you'd like to talk to anyone and find out a little bit more. And if you never want to have to think about those pesky proxies again, <laughs> you can do it in bulk, can't you? And, you uh, can, yeah, that's yeah. right. So there's really two ways to allocate your proxies. If you just want to do it case by case, that's where you do write in Australian Shareholders Association into your form or the email online. Or if you want to do it you know, more on an ongoing basis, the other way you can do it is actually to, to contact the registry and they can send you a form where you can permanently allocate your proxies to the shareholders association for each of the companies that you own. Now, if you do sell your shares and rebuy them, you'll have to redo that, unfortunately. It's a bit clunky, not exactly the way we'd love it to work, but it is easier, obviously, if you're just happy to permanently allocate. And when I say permanently, you can change it at any time, but so that you don't have to think about it anymore. If you are happy to keep doing it, you can just contact the registry, get the form, put your companies in there and write in Australian Shareholders Association and they'll then each and every AGM allocate your proxies that way to us until you tell them not to. Yeah, and I just wanted to add as well that going to those meetings, they're a great gateway drug into getting into the association and meeting other fellow investors and especially people who've had a lot of experience for a lot of their lives as well that can share their experience as, as investors and also as people who've worked in certain industries. Yeah, we've got thousands of members who attend those meetings every month. And as you say, there's lots of wisdom and experience in the room. So if you, particularly if you're newer on your investing journey, that can be a great place to you know pick the brains of some people that have been investing a long time in the share market and, and probably have some, you know, some learnings and some battle scars that they can share with you. And that's the nice thing too. It's very independent. You're not being pitched to or sold to in those meetings by other members. It's really members talking to other members and sharing their experience. Of course, we have guest speakers that come along to the meetings a lot of the time too. So you can certainly hear from a company or a fund manager or an economist or a you know resource expert or whatever it might be each month. So there's certainly people that come along and talk about their story or their companies. But amongst the members, you can obviously also have a really good you know face-to-face chat and, and pick their brains if that's something that you think could be helpful for you. Fantastic, Steve. Thank you very much for joining me again. Thanks, Phil. Real pleasure to have a chat again, as always. And, you know, thanks so much for all the great work you're doing for investors with the podcast. I I listen regularly and I'm sure lots of other people really appreciate what you do too. So thanks so much for for getting all these great guests on and sharing knowledge with us as investors. Shucks. Thanks, Steve. (laughs) No worries. Thanks, Phil. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to Shares for Beginners. You can find more at sharesforbeginners.com. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player. 
or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.